0: Peace, peace, and welcome to another installment of Cook on Monday morning. This is an especially important discussion for me because I'm talking to a family member, uh, a man that I've known since I was 15. I, it's been 20 years. <laughs> and uh, throughout every area of my life, we, we've been connected through like, you know, Going to college and this, through the graduations, through the jobs, through uh, the successes, through the failures, through the new loves and the breakups. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's, been, uh, it's been, it's been, me and the homie Trevor Gardner. He was my tenth grade history teacher, and now oh, he history. is seventh period. Was it seven? Oh, (laughs) man, I remember. Uh, Now he is the dean of students at Arise High School, a beautiful school community in the Fruitvale neighborhood of Oakland, the author of two books, Discipline Over Punishment and his latest release, Leading in the Belly of the Beast. Um, I'm excited to get into this conversation with Trevor but before I do, I'm gonna read an excerpt from his first book. I begin every school year saying to my students, this year you will teach me more than I can ever possibly teach you. They always laugh and dismiss my words, assuming I'm joking or trying to win them over with a compliment on day one. But each June for nearly 20 years, I reflected back and realized the truthfulness of this maxim. So much of what I know about teaching about people. Even about myself, I have learned from the young people and families I've had the privilege of teaching and being in a community with for over 20 years. Welcome, Mr. Gardner. Welcome, Trevor.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Steven. Uh I appreciate you reading that, man. Um, and uh, yeah, it's beautiful to be here. It's super special for me as well. Um, and I feel, uh, man, you're giving me all emotional <laughs> um I feel, uh, yeah, I feel really privileged to be here. And uh, you know, that quote is perfect because being here talking to you is like that's the embodiment of that quote, right? Like it's been true all along and and you know, like the uh the the student becomes the teacher, right? And uh, you know, I feel like I've been learning a lot from you all along, but uh but I just is just you know a beautiful moment that's symbolic
0: of that, right? The student becoming the teacher. So thank you for being my teacher all along. Oh man! I mean, you family man. This is like you know. I've been learning from you, um, and you know your 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 career in education. I kind of want to dive into. I want to get into your upbringing. Um, you know, we are we are recording this at the at the start of right before the school year is about to start,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, you're getting ready to launch classes virtually. <laughs> So let's let's touch on that before we get into your backstory. How's it going? What's what's it looking like,
1: man? Well, um, it's it's multi layered for me because uh, I was just right before I came into this conversation, consoling my my son Omari, who is an eighth grader uh, in OUSD, and we just got word this afternoon because OEA and OUSD have been in negotiations, and we just got word a few hours ago that they are going to start on August tenth, uh, much to his chagrin. So. You know, I'm operating uh, as a father and a school leader as well. Um, so, you know, it is been a marathon. It's been a marathon all week because I've been, we were back on Monday with my staff uh, and we've been working and grinding all week. And I'm incredibly fortunate to work with this beautiful team of educators who are courageous and passionate and uh, and super committed and still it's overwhelming, right? And so they're, they're overwhelmed every day. One, because the start of a school year is always a lot and it's always overwhelming, but you add the layer of literally having to build entirely new systems, um, entirely new structures and, uh, and tools and ways of learning on top of just getting ready for the school year. Uh, and it really is, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing that, that teachers and educators are doing right now. And then planning on top of that, planning into the unknown, right? Like we went away in March and we thought, in fact, I have this photo where my, um, where my admin team, we literally wrote on the whiteboard, what's your prediction of when we'll be back? And it was like, oh, April 27th, May 17th, May this, right? Nobody said August. Um, and here we are in August, and now we're like, well, maybe we meant 2021, <laughs> right? And so that planning an, into the unknown is is an extra layer of challenge that that folks are um, that folks are dealing with. Um, yeah. Not to mention that a lot of them are are educating and and supporting their own children um, who are who are in school as well, or or their young children who aren't in school yet. Yeah, man, uh, just just mad respect to all the teachers and educators who are uh who are doing
0: it right now agreed i haven't really talked about what my experience was like when you're talking about those dates of coming back you mm-hmm. know because i i made the decision along with the board and superintendent to close schools and we were in those closed session meetings with the leaders of the public health department you know and i was talking to the mayor right um kind of here and there we don't talk regularly but this is a big decision you know and um it's a trip because <laughs> I, I was I was one of those people. We initially closed schools for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And right before we closed schools, we were shutting down particular sites if people had what we thought were COVID symptoms. Like if they were like, you know, like a parent at Lowell had COVID. And so we shut down all of Lowell, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's our biggest high school. yeah. And so all the other high schools were like, uh, <laughs> why are we open? <laughs> you know, and so yeah, I, I was on the side of trying to, I thought that we would be back at the start of May, and you know, yeah, now we're in August. <laughs> and uh and so it's a trip, man, it's a trip. I mean with, with, with the with the work around restorative practices, right, which which is your first book, what does that mean now in a virtual setting?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's, it's on some level, it's an incredible opportunity. So I've actually been, uh, I did a summer book group with about 20 educators from around the country, uh, focusing it was a, uh, after a seminar that I did on the book. And, uh, and we were digging into that question. Uh, so on some level, I think right now is an incredible opportunity to, to reimagine, to dismantle and to rebuild because we don't have students in the building right? And so, so many of the issues related to school discipline that we deal with on the day to day and that often consume us, uh, we are not encountering, right? And so I think on some level we have the space to do some of that redesign work that to dismantle and rebuild, right? And so this team of educators that I've been working with who are in you know, a dozen or so different schools from teachers to school leaders. Uh, the question is like, what is, what is true about our discipline systems right now that we don't want to be true when we come back, whenever that is? And how are we using this moment to, to rebuild, to dismantle and rebuild? So let's look at our policies. Uh, is, is, is your policy punitive? Is it entirely punitive? okay, let's rewrite our policies, right? So that when we come back, there's a restorative component to our discipline policies. Let's look at our classroom practices. What are we prioritizing in our professional development, right? Are we prioritizing test prep? Uh, are we prioritizing um, certain things that are, that are um, you know, Bettina Love uses this incredible term, spirit murdering. It's incredibly powerful term, spirit murdering. So many of the things we do do to students in schools um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, uh, results in this spirit murdering, right? And so are we prioritizing practices that have that impact on students? Or are we pro- prioritizing practices in, in our professional development and what we ask our teachers and educators to do that are really restorative and transformative? So I think that's one thing is that is that right now it's an opportunity to, uh, when we are not so overwhelmed because what happens is that school leaders, teachers are so overwhelmed with the day-to-day that it's rare that we get to step back and take the big picture perspective in order to be able to, to dream, to reimagine, to dismantle, and to rebuild. So I think we have to use this moment to do some of that. And then the other thing I think is that we have to shift the energy that we put into some of these systems of some of these discipline systems into systems and structures of wellness in the moment, right? So let me give you an example. We were um, we were talking about at my school and and a few of the schools of folks I was talking to, they have something like a student justice panel, right? Like a group of students who participate in uh, in the school culture and the discipline of the school. So we're talking about transforming and having those. Student leaders take on the role of sort of 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 wellness, right? And so they're checking in on on students who they know might be struggling, right? Creating different ways of of tuning in to students who might be disconnected, disengaged, uh, who know as students they know so much more than we do about what's going on with each other. So they're in tune with that, right? And so, uh, what role can they play in supporting each other's wellness? I think those are, those are a few things we we can and need to be doing right now.
0: The uh, emphasis on restorative practices, it kind of like picked up a lot of energy, maybe at least when I was paying attention to it, like maybe 10 years ago, maybe like seven to 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there it was it was a lot of goodwill around implementing it in San Francisco as an alternative to uh, suspension. And, you know, your, your book, Discipline Over Punishment, Right. It's like it's, it speaks to this divide of um, or the, the disconnect uh, on how the punitive approach isn't working and what restorative, what a restorative approach will look like. But in the implementation of it across at least our district, it's like very, it's incredibly varied. I wanted to kind of get your impression on how it as an approach is taking hold across schools, like what's going well, what what's not. Um and we should also just do a little ground setting, like what it is, you know, for people that <laughs> just may not know. But like, yeah. let's let's take that first. Like what is restorative practices? And then we can talk about how it's going.
1: Yeah. I mean, restorative justice, restorative practices, restorative discipline. There are several different terms that are used, I think, at, at the most base level is a shift from a, a punitive approach that essentially is individualistic and um, approaches a, a, a wrongdoing or a harm on the part of a student with a punitive individualistic response. And what that looks like in schools is, you know, it's, it's sort of crazy, it's what it's looked like in schools for, forever, right? It is essentially the removal of students from the space of learning. So it might be getting kicked out of the classroom, it looks like suspension, it looks like detention, and ultimately it looks like expulsion right? So the response is you did something wrong. And so you're being removed from the space or you're being punished in a certain way. Uh, A restorative approach, which isn't just about schools, and and I'm definitely not an expert in restorative justice in general, my entire experience with restorative justice comes from my experience as a teacher. Um, And I hear you, you know, when I I first wrote an article that um, became the book, essentially was about 10 years ago. And I was like, you know, shooting in the dark, right? Like this is this is what I think is the right thing to do, and this is I think the right response to my classroom. And and honestly, like I've been learning as I go. Oh, this thing is like there are frameworks and there are structures and there are systems that that are called restorative justice. Um, but I think at its root, at its its root is basically this idea that uh, we are a community, and so a harm done uh, requires a response that. Um, respects uh, all community members that are impacted with the goal of of transforming um, that transgression, transforming that behavior into something um, that changes for the individual, but also is healing for the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not about one-on-one. It's not about punishment. It's about ultimately both individual and community wellness where there's definitely responsibility taking on the part of um, those who did harm or those who transgressed, uh, but it is definitely not a removal from the community. Um, and, and it requires uh, an understanding that there's community impact for those transgressions that, must, um, that you had to take responsibility for.
0: Let's, let's, let's take it to like a few practical examples.
1: Yeah. So, so I, I think in schools, you know, um, again, like the, the detention suspension. Oh, no,
0: I'm going to give you a scenario. I'm going to give you a scenario. Okay. And then you're going to okay. tell me the restorative, The punitive uh, uh, and the restorative support.
1: Quiz. Uh, you getting back at me, huh? From all those tests I gave. you. <laughs> all
0: right. So look, so check it out. So you're teaching a class and the student says, this is some motherfucking stupid ass shit, bitch. that's not that's not so uncommon to happen in a a high school setting but (laughs) maybe it is maybe it isn't so so what's the punitive approach what's the restorative approach
1: well I mean obviously the punitive approach is is like get out of my class you're going to go to the dean or whatever you're going to get suspended and I'm done with it right and and the expectation of the punitive approach the false expectation on the part of of um, teachers and educators is Like, I'm going to send you away to this other place and something magical is going to happen there and you're going to come back to me all better and things will be different, right? Well, we know that's not true. There's usually not something magical that happens out there in the form of punishment and you come back all different. So you're going to do the same thing again and again. And uh, I mean, I think that scenario is is good because it brings up the... Um, what in the, in the book I call preventative discipline, right? Which is really about relationship building. So my, uh, my initial response to that is like, that wouldn't happen in my classroom <laughs> because I will have built the relationship with students. So that, I mean, it, maybe it will on day one, right? Um, that's a different thing. But I think there's, there's so much that goes into building relationships, building connections, creating the conditions so that those kinds of things don't happen in my classroom. So to avoid that, right? And so there's, we could talk more about the relationship building piece because that's a whole different component mm-hmm. um, and it's still gonna happen, right? Um, and so I think the response, you know, one of, the, one of the most powerful tools that I learned as a young teacher was how to respond to students in the moment, right? So if, if that happens in my classroom, I know that is uh, an out of the ordinary behavior. My response at first would probably be to, you know, like my my how I would want to respond is like, get the fuck out of my classroom. Who you think you're talking to, right? Mm-hmm. I would hopefully take a breath in that moment and not do that. Uh, and then I would respond to the student, are you okay? right? Or what's going on with you? Um, because there's something happening with that student that's causing them to behave in this way that is totally out of their character, right? Or that is totally out of character for how you would behave in my classroom. Um, so I think that in itself, in the moment is a super powerful restorative response. Just simply questioning, are you okay? What's going on with you? You know, this is kind of a tangent, but I just got done reading this incredible book um, by this woman, Valerie Kaur, called See No Stranger. And one of the things that I took from that book is the power of wonder. So she's talking on a much broader kind of political context, right? Um, how do you approach people who have a fundamentally different political view than you, who who maybe even don't fully believe in your humanity, right? And she talks about the power of starting with wonder. Beginning with wonder, um, I think is really powerful. So I would that question, right? And then I would get my class going and then I would ask that student to step outside, right? And I would have a conversation with that student. Now, one of two things is gonna happen. Right. That student is still going to be in that emotional moment and they might escalate, at which point, like I'm I'm actually not having that conversation right now because that's not going to be productive. So I would say, OK, cool, go um, go have a seat, go, you know, go sit in the office for a little bit or go to, um, you know, the dean's office, whatever it is. Or that student is going to calm down, realize, right, um, that, uh, you know, that that's inappropriate and in what they did and probably apologize to me in the moment, at which point I'd say, cool, I appreciate your apology. You just said that in front of 25 other students. So what do you think needs to happen with that, right? And they might not be ready in the moment to come back in and apologize to the whole class, but at some point they're also going to take responsibility for that with the whole class because they just call me out my name and my class out my name in um, in front of the whole class, right? But even that, like walking back in with the student and the student seeing us like, we're cool. They know something happened outside that shifted that dynamic. Uh, so, you know, I think that's uh, super simple, but uh, but a really powerful restorative response. Um, and, you know, so much of it is is really shifting the power dynamic and the authority in the classroom. Right. In the book, I talk about the difference between um being an authority versus being an authoritarian, right? And authority uh, is not given, it's earned. Just like respect is not given, it's earned. And you know, this is, again, something else I'm sure we'll get into, but especially as a white man in a classroom with mostly students of color who don't have the same experiences that I have, it's on me um, to work really hard to earn that trust and earn that authority because I'm sure much of their experience from previous, however many years in school, um, they've had uh, layers of negative and harmful experiences with educators who look like me, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's on me to earn that authority. And so, um, you know, walking back, I think the fear oftentimes of, of teachers, well, I'm gonna lose power, I'm gonna lose authority in the classroom, right? But if I've earned that authority with the class, when I walk back in that classroom and they see that student and I, the student who just said whatever about my class is walking in and we're cool, their response is going to be like, "Oh, cool!" Something must have happened outside of that classroom where they've regained that respect, right? And they and they get that as opposed to being like, "Oh, Gardner just got called out his name. How's he going to let that student come back to class?" Right? So, so I think it's that earned authority that allows that interaction to happen.
0: You mentioned your upbringing, and I want I want to I want to touch on that. He can go through a bunch of school scenarios and I think it will be useful for people, but you can also get his book (laughs) and start there and then reach out to him for some uh, discussions or coaching or speaking if that's of interest to you. You grew up in California. Talk talk a little bit about your hometown, uh, how you grew up, where you grew up.
1: Yeah, man. I grew up in uh, Northern California in a small town called Ukaya, where my folks still live. And uh, it's a small town, about 15,000 folks uh, and it is a very different place than, um, Bayview Hunters Point where I first started teaching at Thurgood Marshall and East Oakland. Um, you know, on some level it was, uh, it was sort of like this, this chill small town, right? Like I, um, you know, my, my upbringing, my childhood was, was easy and was pretty simple. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I'm actually, um, doing some more writing about this. There were A few chapters that I wrote that didn't go into leading in the belly of the beast um, that hopefully will be in a forthcoming book, but specifically um, interrogating and examining um, my upbringing and my whiteness and that impact on myself as an educator. You know, so I I, what the way I talk about it is I from the small town, I grew up in this kind of bubble of whiteness, right, where it just as in most uh, you know, small rural places in this country. it's just sort of the norm and I didn't question it. I didn't know uh, much outside of that. It just was was what it was until I went to college and, and then started teaching at which point my um, you know my level of racial consciousness was was quickly raised. Um, but I you know I had a, um, the incredible fortune of having parents who, uh, I always tell people the the most powerful gift they gave me was unconditional support right I was um, I made choices and uh, sometimes they didn't agree sometimes they pushed back against them but ultimately when I made those choices uh, they got behind me and they supported me um, and so it was a really it was a powerful gift for my life because it's allowed me to um, to do things like write a book when I you know, when I first got offered the book contract, I was like, write a book. I don't know
0: what you're talking about. <laughs> so, um, you
1: know.
0: Yeah, I have a few more questions about that. So shout out to Trevor's parents because uh, <laughs> when I was, can I tell the story? When I was in high school, yeah. uh, I wanted to go to a a summer program. A caveat, all of Trevor's current students shouldn't think to ask Trevor's <laughs> questions. So we, we don't tax his parents. <laughs> But I wanted to go to a summer program in Chicago and I had to raise money. And one of my first contributions came from Trevor's parents. He, uh, they gave me uh, a very generous donation to go to the summer program. And I was going into my, my senior year. It was the summer to my junior and senior year. So shout out to them. I've never met them actually. So we gotta, we gotta solve that. Once. That was
1: crazy you never been up there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, unconditional support. Um, what what did they do for a living? Your parents do?
1: They're small business owners. So okay. so my folks um, own a scrap metal recycling business. Got it. Which, uh, which is where I learned what work what really was when I when I was fifteen in the summer, <laughs> sunrise, and I was like, working in the junkyard. In the uh-huh. so I was I was very clear. I'm I'm staying in school um, <laughs> education. I'm not I'm not working here for my life.
0: You mentioned. Um... Uh, racial consciousness, like when you came into your racial consciousness, you went to UC Santa Cruz. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, talk about that. Talk about what that what that was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Santa Barbara was really a choice that was like geographically appealing, honestly. Um, and uh, and I think like definitely the beginning of some awareness happened there. Um, I started to get involved. You know, there was there was definitely uh An awareness by the time I got to college and an awareness of, of my privilege and what I was given in the world uh both racial and economic privilege and um you know some naive idealistic notion of wanting to um you know wanting to do something in response to that right wanting to give back and so I started getting involved with some some different nonprofits um and student organizing down there um so that was, you know, sort of a, like seeds were planted, but really it wasn't until I started teaching and I, I you know, I graduated um, and moved to San Francisco and started teaching when I was 22, super young. So, um, so that's really when uh, the, the sort of racial consciousness, I was, I was confronted with, with my ignorance and all that I didn't know and, and started to wake up. And, you know, actually the, the working chapter of uh, one of the chapters I'm working on around um, leading as a white leader and, and being a white educator is—is uh, is there is no woke, right? Mm. There's no such thing as woke. There's there's only awakening, because um, I, I I am reminded every day, all the time, that uh, that I don't know shit, right? Mm. And and like I know some things, and I'm learning some things, but um, but I don't know shit, right? And so I think that's an important, like that humility um and the awareness of that is is super important and so like i've been you know this is year 21 in education um but every day there's still times where i'm like oh damn like how did i not know that or how was i not aware of that
0: yeah that openness and humility is important um to keep i think at the top of mind for anybody as they're trying to improve and and lengthen their craft it's like okay i have expertise i have experience to share enough for like now a second book. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm still, I'm still growing and learning. And you and I have talked several times about whiteness and the responsibility around like helping white people that are trying to get to a better place around, you know, what their whiteness means for the context that they're working in. It's been, it's been elevated like 10 times since the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's not an oldest conversation in the schools, but it's like a new one and several other new in a sense for people's willingness to take it on. Um, and I told you straight up, like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I'm not helping. <laughs> like we not, family, we cool. Yeah, but I'm not helping white people, like you know, <laughs> it's not my job, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, yeah. like um w- what has been your experience sort of in broad strokes around connecting with other white educators to talk about privilege?
1: You know, I think for the most part, especially the schools that I'm working in, I work, I have worked in schools and I currently work in a school that uh, very clearly has a stance around justice um, and draws educators who, and you know, we're in the Bay, right? So who, who, um, who come to the work because they want to do, on some level, justice work. Uh, And so I think for white educators in that space, there's definitely an openness and and a leaning in. Um, And it's been, you know, and I think at the same time, uh, an ongoing realization, like I said, of uh, I didn't know what I didn't know, right? And I think that's why it's important for White, white folks to do this work with other white folks, right? Because it can be incredibly burdensome and harmful to folks of color to be a part of this sort of awakening and realization, right? When y'all are like, how, how did you not know that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think working with, with white educators, there's, there's definitely an openness and a willingness. Um, but, you know, folks are in, in everywhere across the spectrum in terms of their own, um, you know, their own sort of development of, of racial consciousness and what that means, both um, sort of looking at the mirror and looking through the window, right? So the, the reflective work of, of my identity and what it means to be a white educator uh, in, in a space, but also looking out the, the window um, and, and having some analysis of systems, structures, history, of racism and oppression um and so even within within a space of white educators uh it's it's very different conversations and and very different work you know we um at my school we actually are um we're doing a whole school read of bettina loves we want to do more than survive this book about uh, have you read it i haven't no okay so you know it's 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 i think the bestseller in education right now but it's this this paradigm shifting book around um what it means to be uh a student of color and especially a black student in our schools these days and and um she's she talks a lot to and about white educators and what their responsibility is uh and so you know we're in conversation in fact i did a a book group with some of my teachers over the summer where we're digging into the book and um you know i think for the most part folks are Uh, are leaning in and are engaged in a way where they're like thirsty for this uh, and at the same time uh, you know a little bit scared and intimidated and questioning like what is what does this mean like this is this is actually this work is 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 different and is deeper and more challenging than like I don't know what I was getting myself into right so there's there's some of that as well and and I'm experiencing that you know like not just educators right so I have uh, you know like some of my folks who I'm still connected with in Yukaya white folks in Yukaya I've been in conversation kind of reaching out right and um, and it's a similar response right like what do I do right like just entering this conversation now right. and you know I think there's a there's an initial leaning in but I also I think the challenge is um, how do we push folks to understand this is not, you know, like it's being said all the time, it's not about reading a book. It's not about a book club, right? This is, this is lifelong, deeply self-critical work that refi- re- requires some level of self-sacrifice as
0: well. That's beautiful. All right. How long have you been in school leadership? I mean,
1: I've been 21 years. This is my 21st year as an educator. 15 of those years were full-time classroom teaching.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then a couple of those years were sort of hybrid Mostly out of the classroom, but some teaching. In the last um, the last five years, I've been full time out of the classroom as the the director of teaching and learning at Arise.
0: Do you miss the classroom? Do you miss teaching?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was one of those teachers who was super critical of folks who were leaving the classroom, whether you were leaving <laughs> or becoming an administrator. Like, I'm never going to do that, right? Uh-huh. I'm in the classroom, and and I have mad respect for you know some of my my most amazing mentors have been folks who have been, you know, like Robert Roth or who who I think was a teacher of yours or Chuck Raznikov, folks from Thurgood Marshall who, who Mm -hmm. began and started 30, 35, 40 years in the classroom, which is incredible. Uh, so yeah, I, I miss it. And I, I, um, I have to work hard. You know, I have this, this set of leadership core values, uh, that kind of I've created to guide my work. And one of them is close to the classroom. Um, so, so I work hard to as much as possible, stay connected to the students in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at Arise, I've been co-teaching, uh, our leadership class for the last few years. So it's only like dipping my toe in, it's just a little bit, but it allows me to, to stay
0: present and, and
1: connected in the classroom.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was surprised to see that, you know, cause we've obviously carried a friendship well beyond our time together, but I'm not unusual in your life around like staying connected to former students like you've had, you've kind of built this um, wide community of former students that are that you're still sort of like you know connected to which I think is a beautiful testament to your commitment to the community um, that you serve and the people that come through you know mm-hmm. it's difficult man like seeing people like I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the school but I'm like never <laughs> Yeah, Um, (laughs) I'm like, I can't, I I mean, I'm not in the classroom, right? Um, I miss being able to connect with with young people is dope. The work that I'm doing on the Board of Education is filled with a lot of different challenges that aren't, um, you know, that have nothing to do with the impact that needs to happen in the classroom. But with with, with writing for you, like you are now building a, a larger community of other educators. Right, because these these works, I think anybody that reads them will get some they will get some real insight into what it's like to teach in an urban setting if they're interested. But it's it's sort of focused, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to be sort of like a um a guide for people in the work that are trying to like drive results or or grow themselves. Um so you're building this wider community of educators. Do you feel like that makes it more challenging to stay connected to the school? Or are you like How was that balancing for you?
1: I don't think I, I I couldn't have written these books if I wasn't still in the work and on a few levels, right? One, because I'm I'm not a professional academic. Um, I'm not a professional scholar, right? I don't have a PhD. Um, I don't have a a lot of letters. I haven't, um, you know, like I've studied, uh, I've studied schooling and education and restorative justice and leadership as a practitioner, Um, but I've never like, you know, it's never been a full-time gig for me, right? So, um, so uh, you know, like I don't, I don't know. Like reading my book is different than reading, uh, you know, a book a book written by a, a professor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's you know that that has benefits and has limitations. Uh, but I you know I just couldn't. I mean I you know I have this sort of constant. Imposter syndrome, right? When I first the the first book, Discipline Over Punishment, came because an editor uh, reached out to me and said, "Oh, I read this article in Cap'n Magazine. I really, you know, I like what you had to say. Do you want to read? Do you want to write a book?" Right. And my first response was like, "Hell no! Who am I to write a book?" Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm a mm-hmm. teacher. That's what I do. Right. And she was like, "Well, try it. Write a chapter, and and we'll see where it goes." And I wrote a chapter, and it like flowed, and it, and it's because. I had 16 years, 15 years of experience to, to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I think uh, that is, is fundamentally, and that, I mean, intentionally, in fact, you read in the introduction of the book, like it's leading in the belly of the beast, the second book, we talk about it being fi- by and for school leaders. So I didn't write the entire book. I edited the book. I wrote a few chapters in it, um, but there are six other uh, or five other school leaders uh, that I was connected to in some way who also wrote chapters. And I was very intentional of reaching out to folks who were still current school leaders because I've read a bunch of books about school leadership, uh, very few of which are were written by folks who are still currently in schools. And it's just different, right? In fact, as I was, as I was writing uh, one of my chapters for leading in the belly of the beast, I was like rewriting it as I went because new stuff would come up and I'd be like, oh, actually, I, you know, um, Shifting my thinking and and continually learning, and and it just—it's a different experience reading a book from that place. Uh, And I think people receive it in a different way. I know when I was a teacher, right? When I had some outside, uh, you know, facilitator who was a consultant come in who hadn't been in the classroom for ten years, I was like, right? (laughs) I was listening to it in a different way, Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, and so I think that. That's what gives it its power. And and none of the, you know, I think four of the authors in the book, this is the first piece that they've published, right? So none of us are professional authors or academics. We're writing from a place of experience and literally just trying to gather um, from a practical and a theoretical perspective, like some of the struggles of school leadership.
0: No, I'll say, I think that's what in part makes um, pedagogy oppressed and um bell Hook's book so powerful mm-hmm. is at least in, in my I mean pedagogy of the press is really dense and you reference it as an influence for you and even in the sentence in the paragraph I read, there's like that influence is there. Let's talk a little bit about pedagogy of press. <laughs> and then I did I wanna uh we don't have a lot of time uh left. I, I wanna everyone knows now we're gonna come back for an additional conversation because I'm gonna dig deeper into <laughs> the text. Because I uh, really want to elevate some of the lessons and kind of go back and forth on the ideas that um, uh, Trevor writes in Leading in the Belly of the Beast with his co-authors and In Discipline Over Punishment. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you remember when you first came across Pedagogy of the Press?
1: Man, I, um, I don't know if this is when I first came across it, but probably probably the when it really hit me is um, I, was, uh, I, I helped found a school called East Oakland Community High School. Um, which was a, was an OUSD school talking about leading in the belly of the beast. That's a, that's a story to be told, right? Um, it was a, a school that, um, you know, a small school that was started 2004 and only lasted three years. We were shut down after three years. And like I said, there's a whole story to that. But as, as part of that, um, I was part of, uh, we, one way we did professional development was we broke into critical inquiry groups. And those critical inquiry groups met weekly um, and focused on whatever uh, it was that they wanted to focus on. It was sort of different levels. Uh, and in fact, I was, uh, I know uh, Jeff Duncan Andrade was on your um, podcast a, a while back. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was one of the, you know, I had the, the privilege of being in his critical inquiry group because he was a teacher at the school, along with like five or six other folks. And, and pedagogy was um, was the first, I think we read the first few chapters of pedagogy. Uh, and you know, I remember a few things, but I think the most most fundamental is that sort of the shift in the the paradigm of teaching around uh, the banking model versus the problem posing model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, mm-hmm. that it wasn't about uh, you know teachers who who know everything who are imparting knowledge on students, right? But about uh, really students making meaning and teachers facilitating making meaning on their own.
0: Yeah, that's that's yeah, the, uh, that's really the part that. The chapters on that are, uh, are paradigm shifting. You used that phrase earlier in the conversation. When I was running Mission Bit, Pedagogy of the Oppressed was like required reading for all the college students before they started, you know? So I was like, we're teaching computer science, you know? And I was like, yeah, everyone's reading, <laughs> yeah. reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Yeah, <laughs> uh, everyone's yeah, reading yeah. Stereotype Threat by Claude Steele or oh, Whistling Valvaldi, Whistling by, by, Valvaldi. By, by Claude Steele. <laughs> and everyone yeah, yeah. read. Uh, everyone will everyone watch uh jeff Nakanandrade's ted talk on uh roses in the concrete it's like a 17 minute talk and mm-hmm. i'll put all those links in the description of the of um uh, you know below so i just had uh you may not remember her diana Lou on the podcast and oh yeah. I, yeah 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 you remember, remember. <laughs> so we were talking about you because uh, I don't know what the the sequence of the releases is going to be, but <laughs> we were talking about you because she's now a professional actress in ho- in, in LA. All right. And your your camping trip is how Diane and I, and I like met, right? So we were talking about her career, her journey, trying to like break into acting, and um, and I was like, oh, I had no idea. That's how we first started talking, you <laughs> know, <laughs> and because uh, I want to get into these like excursions you do with students and what that's looked like and how that's kind of changed over the course of the years. But when I was in high school, uh, Trevor and a few other educators led a, I forget how many nights it was, like this overnight or a few overnight backpacking trip. And that trip is how I became close to my now best friend, Leonard Diagostino, And uh, I officiated Leonard's wedding he and his mm-hmm. wife Patrice have been married since 2013, but we built that bond over that camping trip that Trevor and his colleagues put together. And um, Diana Lou mentioned it also. Um, that's how we became friends. So I know that's taken on a few different like phases, but talk a little bit about what you've done with that and 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 why you've done it.
1: Yeah, man, that was, uh, you know, an incredible, that was my, my first year at Thurgood. It was this thing called Intercession, where all teachers plan some sort of uh, like week long out of the classroom learning experience. And uh, it was a real gift to have um, done and led that because it was, uh, it was where I began to learn that what happens in the classroom is often like the least important thing, right? Or at least compared to all the possibilities of what could happen. Um, and I remember that was, uh, it was Point Reyes, right? And uh, 30 students, Point Reyes, it rained like crazy on us the second night. I remember y'all jumping <laughs> up on the table tots because there was raccoons out, you know. <laughs> um, hilarious, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think, was, was the beginning of a foundation of understanding that teaching was not about just about what happens in the classroom, right? So in the same way that you and Leonard connected, um, I feel like that experience for me with a, with a lot of my students was like, oh, right I started to see my students in a different way because we're a certain way in the classroom. and this is connected to the belly of the beast right for for so many students like you you walk into a school building and you walk into a classroom and it's like the last place I want to be and they're just they're just layers of you know, again, back to Bettina Love and that idea of spirit murdering, right? The experience of, of so many what she calls dark students, right, is uh, is so layered with spirit murdering in, in, in a lot of spaces in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that was my first camping trip, but I started a backpacking club and did camping and backpacking trips my entire time at Thurgood. Um, you know, we would do four or five trips a year. And and since then, I've, I've been doing it every year. In fact, it evolved into uh, my brother and I, about 15 years ago, we bought this piece of property up in Ukiah where my folks are at, where mm-hmm. I grew up. Uh, and we've been taking students there um, several times a year just to like camp out and get out of San Francisco and get out of Oakland just for a different kind of experience. Uh, and, and one, it's, it's beautiful and fulfilling for me, right? Like I love spending that time outside of the classroom with my students. But two, it's just it's it's so. In fact, I, I work really hard to uh, get as many of my teachers as possible to go up there with us, and to and especially the teachers who are struggling with students that with relationships, and even um, purposeful around inviting students who are struggling to connect with school or struggling to connect with students. Because you get out there, and and it's just an entirely different experience. They get out there, and they're like leading. Eight mile hikes, right up to Eagle Peak, or mm-hmm. they're staring under the stars and teaching uh, their peers about like the constellations, or mm-hmm. they're the ones starting the fire, or they're cooking dinner, or whatever it is, right? And so you just get to see this fullness of their humanity that that is so hard to to see in the classroom, right? And so yeah, man, that that for me was like, oh, okay, like I, mm-hmm. I see um, what this can do for for relationship and just for like you know, for us seeing each other's humanity, which is something that doesn't happen enough
0: in, in a school building. Yeah, that camper trip was, uh, I I read this book called Tribes. Uh, the, the author's first name is Sebastian. I forget his last name, but he, he talks a lot about in that book how hard things like strengthen bonds um, mm. in ways that, like it's like a fundamental part of people. Like we need that. We need like to struggle through something hard. And a yeah. lot of his... Uh, Work is focused on like how veterans miss these like awful battle conditions mm-hmm. because of the people they were connected to when they went through it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, not to say that your cabin trip is like a war zone, but <laughs> <laughs> well, those eight, easy. with yeah. those eight mile hikes for teenagers. Because I complained, my ass <laughs> off. So yeah. I complained I, every day. <laughs> three miles uphill
1: with a thirty pound pack on for sure. I mean, I think that. I think it's it's that like struggle brings us together. I think it's also um, folks like to shine, right? Mm -hmm. They like to be successful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, imagine students who just aren't good at school, who struggle academically.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You spend seven hours a day, five days a week, not feeling affirmed, right? Not feeling successful. And so, damn, like, how is that, how does that impact your, you emotionally, psychically, right? Like, Spending all day every day and they do and they do this shit every day, right? They come to school and they just like and they do it right Mm -hmm. and you know, like I I was fortunate to be to be good at school and that wasn't my experience, right? Um, My son struggles, you know, like he doesn't love school. He struggles academically. He's brilliant and beautiful and like empathetic and Like he's he's just this incredible soul but, but I know his experience with school is not often feeling successful. Um, and so, you know, imagine those students who day after day, they go through the day and they're probably trying hard, right? Or at some point they tried hard or at some point in the day they're trying hard they're not feeling successful. Damn, like that's that's a lot. That's a heavy load um, yeah. to carry day after day. And so they got to shine. They got to feel successful. We have to find spaces where... Um, and and find ways to affirm them and so like like i said getting out of the classroom being on these um these trips and it was important for me like oh damn this student who who like i struggle <laughs> with like i don't know how to help them be successful in my class they get out there and it's like whoa they are mm-hmm. they
0: are shining and successful in this totally different way that i had no idea about mm-hmm. yeah that's a whole dimension i'm glad we touched on that i'm glad i brought i remembered that <laughs> i didn't want to bring that up but i would because that's a whole other dimension of. Uh, you know, it's the relationship, stupid one of the titles of your uh, yeah. uh, chapter in your book. Um, I'm gonna I'm close out with a rapid fire question round. We're gonna do a part two because I'm gonna get more excerpts. In no, there.
1: man, that <laughs> was an hour,
0: <laughs> but started. for now, um, you ready for the rapid fire round? I think so. I think so. Okay, do you meditate?
1: Uh, no. I do I go on daily walks in the morning, I wake up at five thirty every morning and I go on a walk for a half hour. so it's a form of meditation.
0: Do you have a motto?
1: Discipline yourself so that no one else has to.
0: What personal weakness can you forgive in someone?
1: What personal weakness can I forgive in someone? Uh, not knowing what you
0: don't know. What's one book you would recommend?
1: Ooh, so so so. Right now, I got two. I got um. Si- All right, discipline <laughs> by Trevor Gardner, leading in the belly of the beast by six incredible education ed- educators. Um, but man, you got to read this book, See No Stranger by Valerie Kaur. It's it's just like heart and body, and it's it's beautiful. It's uh, yeah, it's one of those ones that's like, I want everybody in the world to read because it will change you. After lot of questions.
0: Okay. Second one, go ahead. I said after Discipline Over Punishment. All right. Okay. Uh, Last part of the question, who's going to win the presidential election? (laughs) Woo-wee!
1: Barack Obama. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. This was Trevor Gardner, two-time author, Discipline Over Punishment, Leading in the Belly of the Beast. Dean of students at Arise High School, family member of my uh, community and family member to many, father, educator, dope person. Thank you, Trevor.
1: So good to be here. Love you, Stevan.
0: Peace, peace, and thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, you could change your life. I'd like to thank Trevor again for being a guest this week. His ongoing commitment to the classroom, his into schools has always deeply moved me. I know I'm not alone. And gratitude for having had him as a teacher and now having a friendship as men. It's a true testament to, you know, his ongoing commitment to the community, and improving at the craft of being an educator. Please uh, check out his books, get them as gifts for the educators that you know. If you're interested in having a, a conversation with him directly about the books, email me, info at stevoncook.com and I can connect the two of you. I'd like to thank our most recent YouTube subscribers, Diana Liu. She was last week's guest. Thank you, Diana. Stacy. Browick and Sarah Bobo deeply appreciate your support. Please follow these folks lead and subscribe to cook Home Monday morning on YouTube. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, also share it with a friend. We are a small listening audience, but we are growing week by week and it's because uh, you are sharing the good discussions that we're ha- having on this platform. Um, so Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Lucidair Harris Holding Company. It is a boutique consulting practice that focuses on building strategic partnerships between businesses and government, recruiting diversity talent to leadership roles, and uh, helping companies drive impact in the communities that they, that they do business in. So if you'd like to learn more about any of that, feel free to email me. It is info at steveoncook.com. We are week by week getting closer and closer to releasing merchandise. It's a great way to support our message of peace, productivity, love, and of course, making the decision to own Monday morning. Um, We wanna create intention about improving ourselves and improving our community. Be the first to purchase some of the merchandise by subscribing to my newsletter at steveoncook.com. We are only releasing a limited amount of pieces, so they are going to sell out. Subscribe to the newsletter to make sure you get your hands on one. Finally, I'd like to thank our listeners once again. I deeply appreciate you. I'd like to thank also the people that make this podcast possible, our videographer, uh, David Topete, and uh, our copy editor, Fernando Enzico Marquez. So I get up every Monday morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. They are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers, the folks uh, creating jobs and keeping our economy growing and moving. Uh, And they are our gig workers, the folks that are stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you until we meet again next week. Peace, peace. And we out.